Thank you for downloading and or streaming the newest bonus episode of Recasted 2.0. I'm Wayne G, joined as always by Jesse. What's poppin'? Hello, hello. You guys are stuck in the middle with us. We do have a recasting coming up with Scott and Frankie from Shoot the Flick, and that is the 1992 Quentin Tarantino film Reservoir Dogs. As we did with Caddyshack last episode, Jesse and I are going to do a review of this film prior to our recasting episode. Wayne, how much did Scott have to send you for us to do a Quentin Tarantino movie? We both dislike him a lot. We do, but I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit excited about watching a movie I hadn't watched before. I agree. This is a first-timer for me, and I look forward to letting you and the audience know how I felt about it. Before we dive in, I do want to remind everyone listening to follow us on Twitter at Recasted Podcast and on Facebook at Recasted Podcast, and be sure to join our public Facebook group, All Things Movies, where you can post anything you want about movies, TV, pop culture, whatever. Jesse likes to do a lot of questions out there, which are fun. Yeah, I like, you know, getting your opinions on things as well as posting some of the new fun movie posters that I see. Some of the newer ones that I saw that I really enjoyed were Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, a very fun looking poster coming out for that, that for a change didn't include every person in the cast on the poster. I feel like those have been pretty heavy recently. And another poster that I really enjoyed was the Sonic 2, where they actually paid homage to the old video game cover. So I thought that was really awesome. And I know the kids in this household here are looking forward to seeing the sequel to that Sonic movie. I was just going to ask you if you had seen the original, because I haven't seen the first one yet. I did, yeah. I mean, you know, video games being turned into movies um, have always been a bit of a struggle, in my opinion. But it wasn't the worst one I've seen. It definitely got some laughs out of it. The uh, character that actually voices Sonic is someone that you and I are both familiar with on different platforms. I think you've seen him on, was it Space Force? And I've also seen him on Parks and Rec. But he's very hilarious. And I think Jim Carrey as well. I mean, if this is his swan song, then, you know, he's going to go out as, you know, a very funny guy. And, and, you know, he definitely looks like Dr. Robotnik. So I think it'll be fun to see the sequel. All right. And before we get into the play-by-play of this film, I did want to get your thoughts on it. As I mentioned earlier, neither of us had seen it before, so this was our first time. What did you think of this film in general? I'm going to tell you, when it took me two viewings. The first time I sat down with my girlfriend and we were like, oh, you know, I got to do this for my podcast. You know, let's see if you want to watch it. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll watch it. We got about eight minutes in and she had to turn it off. She was like, I can't do it. You'll have to watch this on your own. The way that it all kind of started out, it was just a little jarring for her. And honestly, it was for me, too. It was definitely a a bit of a a raw open. It was very weird the way that, you know, they start the film and it was tough for her and I to feel like we were interested enough to continue on. But because I needed to for, you know, the film and for this review, I watched it and I'll have to say I enjoyed it much more watching the whole thing. I can't look at it as just that first eight to 10 minutes. It definitely grew on me. Yeah, I know, as you mentioned earlier, neither of us are really Tarantino fans. I found this to be a very simple film. It reminded me of in high school, I took a film class and at the end of the year, everybody had to make a film as a final project. And everybody in my class basically made this movie, two to three set locations, lots of people just talking to each other. You know, the story was fine, even if it was chock full of racism and homophobia. I don't really understand how it catapulted Tarantino's career, because I'll be honest, I didn't think there was anything really special about this movie. 
It definitely screams, hey, this is my first film. You know, like you had mentioned, the limited locations, we've got the warehouse, we've got the diner. Um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of money pumped into it, and it definitely shows through. And, you know, it, it definitely, it, it was a decent movie, but it skyrocketed, you know, his career because of the cult classic it became. I mean, even the intro, the way that it kind of started out with them walking out and then the credits falling, I mean, people adore that intro. You know, Tarantino has his his faves, you know, his fans that adore him. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to be one of them. There's a few of his movies I enjoy. This one I'll put in, in the good category. It's not great. He does have some ones that I will put in the great category. And then there are other ones that are snooze fests. And speaking of good, not great, we do like to rate these films on a scale of one to five. We did Caddyshack last episode. You gave it a three. I gave it a 3.25. How would you rate this film? Well, now that I know we're going to play with decimals, I'm going to have to say that I did enjoy it more than I enjoyed Caddyshack. So I'm going to give this one a 3.3. Okay. I actually have it as 2.5. I couldn't put it ahead of Caddyshack because Caddyshack is an American classic. It's not as much fun. It's not as rewatchable. It's not as quotable. It's a small budget film with a rookie director and, you know, it was fine. You do have those golf ties. So that definitely makes sense that you have Caddyshack, you know, a bit higher ranked. Where, you know, is this one, it, it definitely, it shows where Quentin's roots are. And he definitely stays true to them as you see his movies go on, you know, from Dust Till Dawn, Kill Bill, Django Unchained. I mean, he's got so many movies now and they all carry a lot of the same characteristics that this one started out with. I mean, the blood and gore. The, you know, the homophobia, the racism. I mean, a lot of that stuff that he's really not been afraid to kind of not just sprinkle in, but, you know, pour on in gallons. He shows that in every movie. So it was gonna, it was good to see where his route started from in this film. But I, I do agree with you. It is basic and simple. The number one thing all of his movies have in common is the art house, jazz loving, turtleneck wearing, Starbucks drinking crowd. Why don't you name Kyle? <laughs> I did bring it up to him because he does like Tarantino a little bit better than I do. Yeah, I actually just had the opportunity to be on another podcast, uh, Three Films in a Podcast, and I know they were bigger Tarantino fans than both you and I. You had the opportunity to be on there for Batman and Robin. I was on there for an MCU auction draft, and uh, you know it was kind of fun to kind of pick their brains a little bit. Well, with the rating out of the way, it is time to get into what Scott and Frankie refer to as the nitty gritty. This is where we go through the film in in chronological order and discuss. So the movie opens up in the diner. You mentioned it. First eight minutes as I'm sitting around. We've got Tarantino, a.k.a. Mr. Brown. He's explaining what he believes the lyrics of Madonna's Like a Virgin means. And then we go into Steve Buscemi's character, Mr. Pink, explaining why he doesn't tip. Uh, let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. The scene, like I said, it's about eight minutes long. And, like you said, you didn't really love this kind of intro to the film. No, they want me to pay attention. But, to be honest, when they don't even pay attention to each other. I mean, you got one guy looking at an address book just repeating one name. You got another guy trying to tell a story where, where the people who he's trying to tell the story to aren't listening to him. They're not paying him any mind. But they want me to pay them mind. They want me to look at what's going on in all six of these people. And honestly, I think, you know, there may have been more. You know, we've got you know, two people that we don't even see the remainder of the film. One being Tarantino who's telling the story. 
And then we've got, you know, another guy. He's kind of got like the, the older stringy hair. I can't remember the actor's name, but he's sitting there smoking a cigar and repeats a few things. But we don't see him again. He's very inconsequential. So, yeah, it was, it was really hard to buy in on, on the movie very early on with it being so kind of quirky. Um, and the conversations were here, there and everywhere. But after that, it really started to fall into place. Yeah, the character you're referencing is Mr. Blue, and as I mentioned, Quentin Tarantino is Mr. Brown, and because of their short-lived existence in this film, they will not be part of our recasting episode. Yeah, I think it really would have been a struggle to kind of recast people that we really didn't get an idea of at all. After this diner opening, we get the cut of slow-motion walking, then the screen goes black with yellow credits, and we find out that Stephen Wright, the comedian, is the narrator and DJ of the radio station. I thought that was kind of cool. K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to 21 in May of 1970. The George Baker selection, Little Green Bag. Yeah, the voice was definitely memorable. I, I could picture it. I've heard it before many times in different settings, so I thought that was very neat that they were able to get that on there. We come out of the black screen to a screaming and wincing Tim Roth, a.k.a. Mr. Orange, and he's bleeding profusely in the back of a car driven by Harvey Keitel, Mr. White. Yeah, and he, he definitely, he, he got shot right in the belly there, you know, so there's a lot of juices, a lot of blood coming out. You know, if that's a rental car, they're certainly not going to be getting their down deposit back. He's making quite a mess like most Quentin Tarantino movies do. I mean, the reason I don't like Kill Bill is because the blood and gore seems to go so over the top. But yeah, I mean, as soon as the credits stop rolling for a second, yeah, we're drenched in blood. You know, we got him screaming, him grunting. He's really going through all the emotions there of being shot. And you got Harvey, you know, just telling him, hey, you're going to be okay. You know, you're going to be okay. You need to repeat this to me. And they're on their way to what we assume is the warehouse. Exactly. The rendezvous point. They get there. And here's the thing I didn't understand watching this scene. I'm watching Mr. Orange, and he's talking about how much pain he's in and whatnot. And I started to wonder, is he a simpleton or was he just like in pain because he was talking like Lenny from Of Mice and Men? What are we waiting for? I'm fucking scared, man. Please hold me. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, I don't think he expected to be shot. You know, you know, we don't want to kind of get into his full character yet, but I don't think anybody expected going into this that they were going to be shot. You know, we saw six criminals, you know, because that's what they are, talking about a, a, a small heist, you know, is what it was. And I don't think anyone really expected to, to be shot or to bleed as much as this. And the guy's screaming, thinking, well, he's going to die. He's going to die. So, uh, I mean, Tim Roth really bought in. I mean, he really proved to me that, you know, he, he was very near death. Uh, I don't know about if he was a simpleton, but he definitely was having some, some trauma going on right there. No, I think we find out later that he's not a simpleton, but it was just the way he was talking. I got that impression of like a childlike IQ. And then obviously when we get to learn a little bit more about him later in the film, I'm like, oh, okay, he was just delirious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the loss of blood, see, you know, between the loss of it and seeing that much blood. I mean, you know, you know th there's a lot going on. I mean, that on top of the, the guns being fired and that, that whole scenario, I'm sure it was a pretty jarring thing, even for somebody of his background. 
we do get a little bit more backstory because Mr. Pink comes in and he's ta- saying that Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue have been killed, which again, we don't miss them. We said that earlier. And he thinks it was a setup because the police were there way too fast. Mr. White says that the police didn't make a move until Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. So we're starting to get a little bit of a picture. Yeah, something I you know I definitely noticed with this movie is you know a it's definitely nonlinear. Like a lot of movies that we see these days, you know, it really kind of spoon feeds us the story, beginning, middle, end. We don't have to work too hard. Whereas this one, there was a lot of popping back and forth between you know the setup, the heist, and then the aftermath. And throughout all that, that's where we got some character development. That's where we're kind of fleshed out. Whereas that first eight minutes, it really sucked because I didn't know who anybody was. And know what they were talking about. Once start, stuff started to kind of pop off and, and roll into, you know, a story, I started to get to know a little bit more about Mr. Orange, a little bit more about Mr. Pink. And yeah, so once we got to the warehouse, that's where we started to flush out more of people's story. And I thought that's what was good about, you know, the, you know, the fact that it wasn't really a linear story. We got to really kind of pop into different people's perspectives about what happened. Another thing I noticed is with the shooting of Tim Roth, Mr. Orange, as well as, you know, the actual heist itself, we aren't shown a lot. We aren't shown the entire scenario. We're shown just enough to stay interested and for the momentum to keep going with the movie, which I thought was good. They didn't have to show everything, you know, and and honestly, Quentin probably didn't have enough money to show everything. It was just tell us a story about it. Right. We didn't see anything inside the jewelry store. Mr. Pink explains how he got away. We see him running down the sidewalk. He's shooting at the police officers. He gets hit by a car and then he steals it. And he tells Mr. White that he got the diamonds stashed away because Mr. White was like, we didn't even get the diamonds. Right. Yeah. And he's he's like, oh, no, I've, I, I've got them. I've got them set away. You know, let's figure this out. Let's wait for everybody to get here and we'll figure it out. And then we get the backstory flashback. It says Mr. White up on the screen. We see him talking to Joe, played by Lawrence Tierney. And I'm curious to get your thought because they did this, I think, with Mr. Orange and with Mr. Blonde. What did you think of this flashback introduction to the characters? Uh, I definitely enjoyed it. You know, like I mentioned, you know, that intro sucked. And so being able to get whether it's flashback or different scenarios that are going to tell me more about the character and why they're doing what they're doing. I thought it really aided in the storytelling and obviously getting more about Mr. White and then Mr. Orange. It really helped throughout the entirety of the film. But yeah, seeing how, you know, Mr. White was this kind of like veteran criminal um, and he was talking to, you know, what really is, is like a boss of sorts. Yeah, I think Joe is definitely the guy who's putting everything together. That's why the police want to get him above all else, which we'll get to that. We do come out of the flashback and Mr. Pink and Mr. White get into it. They pull their guns on each other. And then we get Mr. Blonde, cool as a cucumber, played by Michael Madsen. And he's just sipping a fast food drink, watching them go at it. Wow. (laughs) That was really exciting. (laughs) I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, me too. I love that game. <clears throat> My heart's beating so fast, I'm about to have a heart attack here. Huh? I got something outside that uh, I'd like to show you guys, so follow me. Follow you? Where? To my car. Would you forget your french fries to go with the soda? I had them already. Yeah? I got something I think you might want to see, though. It's a big surprise. I'm sure you'll like it. Come on. 
Yeah, the reason that they end up pulling the guns on each other is, like you had mentioned, you know, Mr. Pink gets there and he ends up, you know, sniffing something out. He's like, hey, you know, there's no way this could have been legit. Something's going on. And he is acting like a true criminal, whereas someone who, like I just noticed, you noted Mr. White is supposed to be this criminal, you know, veteran. He seems to be kind of acting a little rookie-ish, you know, really kind of getting cozy with, with Mr. Orange, you know, totally not buying into the fact that there could have been some type of setup going on. So they end up almost role reversing um, and they end up, you know, pulling the pistols on each other. So that was definitely exciting for the moment that it was there. And yeah, just as suave as he was at the table, we see Mr. Blonde walk into the warehouse, you know, like you mentioned, sipping the drink and, you know, he's cool as a cucumber. You know, he's he's like, oh, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you all about it. And, you know, you got he's got accusations coming his way, but he's not rattled at all. He's very cool about it. And then we get his flashback and we see that his name is Vic Vega. He just got out of prison and he goes to see Joe. We find out that Eddie is Joe's son, played by Chris Penn. And they talk about how they're going to get him a job on paper working at the docks. And that's going to keep the parole officer off his back so that he can do jobs for them. And of course, we get a bunch of homophobic jokes from Chris Penn. Yeah, there was a little bit of a scuffle there inside Joe, Joe's office there between the two of them. It kind of showed that they had, you know, some some history going back and forth, but ultimately they were cool with each other, Eddie and Mr. Blonde. And, uh, you know, o- overall, you know, we definitely see how they're going to set him up. We don't see why, but they're going to set him up and make his life easier because of the parole officer. Then we get some more Stephen Wright narration and the return of the guys who are beating up a cop that Mr. Blonde kidnapped. They're trying to find out who ratted and Eddie shows up and says, guys, he's not going to tell you who it was or he'll just say a name just so you stop beating him up. So this is pointless. And so him and Mr. Pink and Mr. White, they go to move the cars and get the diamonds and they leave the police officer alone with Mr. Blonde. Good for you. Now let's go get it. But first, we got to get rid of those cars outside. It looks like Sam's hot car lot out there. Yeah, that they do. And, and when they do, they go ahead and, and they play, you know, the iconic song, which a, as I listen to it and, and I also watch the trailer again, I go, you know what? There's more in, in the meaning of that. Quentin was thinking a little deeper. That cop was stuck and he was stuck in the middle of the scenario and he was stuck with Mr. Blonde. So he's stuck in the middle with you. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the uh, you know, I, I thought a little bit deeper about it. Maybe I'm just being weird, but I think, you know, there was there's definitely a meaning to that song being played right there. Wow, you know, we see Mr. Blonde dancing. And again, we don't see the full ear chop, but we see just enough to be interested and to know that some damage was done. And we get to see how crazy and dark and maniacal Mr. Blonde can become. I was just going to make that point. I remember when this movie came out in 1992 and they talked about how gory it was and everybody talked about getting the air cut off, but the camera cuts away when they do that and they just come back to him holding the air in his hand. And I'm like, dude, now we have saw like this is nothing. Yeah, they they didn't show us the whole heist. They didn't show us the whole ear chop. You know, and again, maybe it's because they didn't have the money to show those kinds of things. But, you know, they, they made it gory. That's the Quentin's own voice. They made it gory and they kept us interested enough to finish this film. So Mr. Blonde goes out to the car, he gets a can of gasoline, he starts splashing it all over the cop, and then before he can light it, he takes out his lighter and gunshots ring out. He's getting shot in the chest several times, and we see Mr. Orange sitting up with his gun. 
Yeah, you know, definitely, you know, for both of us seeing this movie for the first time, you know, I, I think for a half second there, we didn't know where those gunshots were coming from. And then they, they pan over and we're like, oh, my goodness. And that's where we get to kind of, you know, put some puzzle pieces together. You know, so the guy, you know, laying on his deathbed just saved another cop. Yeah, I was just going to say that when Mr. Orange at this point, he admits that he's an undercover cop and the other cop is like, yeah, I know I recognize you. But for me... I actually read the synopsis of the film going in. I didn't think there was actually going to be a rat. I thought it was just going to be like a witch hunt where they all turn on each other. Would you have enjoyed that more if there wasn't any kind of known source? It was just them getting real stir crazy about it? I think I would have liked that a little bit more. It did spoil a little bit having an actual rat. Or do you think you spoiled it by reading the synopsis? Well, I wanted to read the synopsis so I didn't go into it like the big Lebowski the first time not knowing what was going on. Oh, well, touche. You know, one was definitely, I think, more more influenced by marijuana, and the other one more influenced by, you know, Tarantino and his ways. Well, we get the flashback to Mr. Orange. We see that he's a cop, and he starts practicing this story called the commode story so that he can woo over the criminals, and he's practicing it over and over and over to make sure he gets it right, and it's all about him walking in the bathroom with weed, and there's four sheriff's guys in there. And, you know, I thought he did all right with the story. I wasn't blown away by it. German Shepherd starts barking. He's barking at me. I mean, he's obvious. He's barking at me. Every nerve ending, all my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming. Take off, man. Just bail. Just get the fuck out of there. Yeah, it was the story that he had to really memorize and know by heart and be able to not just say it, but feel it and live it. And I believe that, I don't know if his partner had some type of history with Joe, but it seemed to be pretty important to him that he was part of this and he helped him out and he he really pushed this commode story on him. And I'm pretty sure he'd mentioned that it was from Marlon Brando, but uh, yeah, definitely he kind of made sure he understood and, and lived this story to the point where he was able to sell just about everybody yeah, and then it comes out, they're riding in the car together, and they're telling the story about Miss E gluing her husband's dick to his stomach, and there's a lot more N-words thrown around. They probably use the N-word like 20 times in this movie, maybe more than they did in Django. I definitely didn't keep count, but I'm sure if we needed to uh, for our actual recording of the episode, we'll be able to have Google help us find out how many were used. But, you know, it's it's definitely in Quentin's wheelhouse to uh, use some inflammatory language to draw his fans uh, to his films. And then we get the scene where they all get their color names, and Steve Buscemi is not happy about being Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Try it once, it doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. He's, he's definitely not stoked at all. He wants to swap names. He tries to, you know, turn up a deal. And we see Joe really kind of show why he is the boss. No, you're not trading. That's your name, and this is why. Tells him exactly why he is Mr. Pink. Um, and uh, I thought that that was powerful. I think for the second time in the film, we saw Joe tell, you know, Mr. Pink what he was going to do. And, and Mr. Pink listened, you know. And for someone who's a career criminal to, you know, kind of fold under pressure like that to someone of... Joe's stature, it showed something. But yeah, you know, we definitely see the color assignment and, you know, a lot of them don't care. And he's the one that definitely does care. To me, actually, this was one of the scenes where I chuckled a little bit because of this disagreement about it. And when Mr. White tells him, he's like, hey, just be cool. It's just a name. Chill out. 
And he's like, yeah, it's cool for you to say. I mean, you've got Mr. White. That's a really cool name. Is it really a cool name? Because I'll be honest with you, my, my dad, you know, my stepdad is David White. And, you know, he, he'd always tell people, oh, my, my last name is Mr. White. I like the color. Is it really cool? Um, I don't know. It makes me think of Walter White from Breaking Bad because Jesse always called him Mr. White. I never did, but uh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I, I know the show. <laughs> So we see Mr. White and Mr. Orange are trying to get away from the heist here. There's kind of a flashback. We see Mr. Brown crashes the car, and he's dead. Mr. White shoots two police officers in the car. They go to steal a car, and this is where Mr. Orange gets shot in the stomach by the lady who's driving, and then he shoots and kills her. And I thought, ooh, that's bad news if you're a cop. You just killed a civilian. Yeah, and he immediately, you know, you can see in him, you know, he knows he has to do it to stay in character with how deep he is. But you can see he regrets, you know, the action he takes because of him being a cop, you know, through and through. But again, he's playing a character and he has to live that character and that character in that moment, in the middle of that heist. He has to shoot, has to get away and has to make sure, you know, to get Joe because that's what the big picture is all about for him. And then Eddie gets back to the rendezvous with the other two guys. He sees Mr. Blonde laying in a puddle of blood dead. And Mr. Orange tells this story about how, you know, he was going to try to turn on them or whatnot. And of course, Eddie's not buying it because he goes way back with Mr. Blonde. And at first he was like, hey, he was going to burn this cop alive. And Eddie just shoots him in the chest like three times. Is what, that cop? Yeah, yeah. And he, this cop right here, he, and bang, 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 bang. I thought that was, you know, really telling about how ruthless Eddie is and how he didn't care about the connection right then and there is when we found out why Eddie and Joe were so willing to help out Mr. Blonde. And it was because, you know, he kept his mouth shut because he wasn't a rat. You know, he ended up spending time in prison, some hard time and didn't flip or turn, which a lot of people end up doing. And so they respected that and that's why they were going to help him. And so Eddie wasn't buying it for one bit that he was going to end up becoming this maniacal guy and turn on everybody and take the diamonds. So it was really hard for him to believe. And uh, that's why he ended up, you know, really getting angry. Yeah, and he says, you know, tell me what really happened. Now Joe walks in. He goes, what for? It's just going to be another BS story. He goes, Mr. Orange here is working with the LAPD. And then we get the Mexican standoff where everybody's pointing guns at each other. And they all shoot each other. And Mr. Pink takes off with the diamonds. And let's settle this with the fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends. And you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad! Yeah, I was going to say, you know, after all the, the firing, we see somebody kind of crawl out from under the staircase. And there he is, Mr. Pink. You know, he's the one that gets to walk away clean. Make sure he grabs that suitcase on his way out, looks behind him, and runs off with him. The police bust down the door, and Mr. Orange tells Mr. White, he's like, I'm actually a cop. I'm so sorry. I am actually a cop. And Mr. White shoots him and kills him. Then the police shoot and kill Mr. White. And the end. That's how it ends. Yeah, I, I think that last scene there between Mr. White and Mr. Orange, it really showed the, the bond, you know, even though if we didn't get a, a lot um, you know, a backstory between the two of them. We saw they created a bond throughout their, their time between the planning of and the actual committing of the heist that they built a bond and that he you know, didn't believe he was an undercover cop and he believed he was just, he was part of the gang, he was part of the crew. And, you know, I think at that point when he said, hey, I'm a cop, he was so torn 
you know, Mr. White was that he was lied to, that he was betrayed, that he had maybe lost sight of what it meant to be like a, a true criminal that he was like, Oh my God, I, I, I lost it. I can't believe, you know, I, I bought into who you were and yeah, he ends up killing him. Cops kill him. And that's how it all ends right there. I think this is a big problem when we watch these movies with these undercover police officers is they get a little bit of that. What is it? That Stockholm syndrome where you kind of become a criminal and you've got to separate. Like if you're Mr. Orange in real life, you don't say anything, you know, cause he's not going to kill you. If he thinks that you're not a cop, they arrest both of you. And then they take Mr. Orange to the hospital. You never see each other again. Right. Yeah. They buy in way too much and uh, it ends up, you know, it ends up costing them in almost every scenario that we see, you know, someone gets a little too bought in, you know, we think about, you know, point break, we think about, you know, fast and furious, you know, specifically look at both those, they both got a little too bought in and ended up costing them, you know, friendships, relationships, people close to them. And, uh, it, it definitely is a struggle for them to really stay true to what their, their role in the, the workforce is and not what their role as an undercover is supposed to be. Well, we knew it was going to be a short review. It's a very simple movie. That's kind of it. We do have the recasting coming up, which we want everyone to listen to. Again, I don't like to give out spoilers, me and Jesse already know what the casts look like. We'll say some of them look really good and some of them are puzzling, but we'll get to the bottom of that when we record that episode. Yeah, very excited. You know, this is really a fun time for recasted for us to have our third opportunity in a row to be, you know, taking on a guest. And this time it's Scott and Frankie, you know, a husband and wife pair that host shoots a flick. And, you know, we're not letting them team up. We're going to do what I'm sure they'd love to do and pit them against each other. So it's going to be me versus Wayne versus Scott versus Frankie. And definitely looking forward to, you know, ripping everybody a new one when it comes to this cast. I think I've got some great picks. I think everybody else has some awful picks. So, um, you know, we'll be able to get into the nitty gritty of that. I think our, that's our third nitty gritty, Scott. So, you know, get a, get a tracker going. But I'm excited to really get into that, the, the real meat and potatoes of Reservoir Dogs and who we would recast in 2022. Absolutely. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like the episode, let us know. Make sure you're following us on social media. Give us advice. Let us know if there's a movie you want us to do. We're always looking for ideas. And if there's any guests you think we should reach out to, if there's a movie podcast that you listen to that you think is really good, we'll reach out to them. We'll see if they want to do an episode. Absolutely. Always looking to grow and get better. And this has been such a fun journey so far. So please continue to like and support us and let us know how we can continue to make you know your ear pleasure the best. Have a great day, everybody. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. <laughs>